0: Good morning. If you're a student, you're dismissed. Gail, thank you. I think you did dang near as good as Sherry, so uh, I think she, I think you did her proud. Um, welcome. I greet you in the name of my Savior. I'm glad you're here today. Um, I'm thankful for the sunshine. What a blessing! What a blessing! Um, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, I sure would love for you to turn to Luke chapter 16. Um, we're going to talk about something a little more serious today. And the reason, if, you, if, you, 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 if you've been coming regularly, you might have noticed over the last few, maybe month, month and a half, that the lessons have become more serious and more heavy, if you will. That's because, uh, that's why Jesus wanted it. Um, we're getting near the end of Jesus's three and a half years of ministry. It's late winter in Israel. It's... Maybe early spring, if you will. Um, Jesus is moving, both geographically and chronologically. He's moving closer and closer to Jerusalem for his final visit to Jerusalem, uh, which will take place in a couple of a few weeks, a month, month and a half. We don't know exactly, but. He is heading toward Jerusalem right now in this story. He's actually on the other side of the Jordan River in an area called Perea where Esau, if you remember Esau in the Old Testament, he settled this area, if you will. And uh, uh, 2,000 years earlier, uh, his descendants are still, were, were still living there. And um, anyway, Jesus is over there teaching. And... Um, He's, as he, we enter into this last few months of his ministry, he's not doing a lot of miracles. Uh, he, he's going to do a stem winder next week. Uh, so come if you can. That's, that's going to be a, a real gully washer of a miracle next week. But, but he's not doing as many miracles. And the crowd that has been following him is less amazed and it's decreasing in size because they were coming for a show they wanted hey man this the circus is in town and Jesus is not giving them all of the spectacular amazing miracles that he once was in the first two and a half years and so the crowds decreasing fewer miracles there's he is his teaching is more uh serious more somber uh, he he feels, he knows that the end is near. And his disciples are feeling this too. There, there's something going on. There's something, there's a heaviness and they can feel that. Um, if you read the whole chapter of Luke 16, the first half of the chapter, Jesus is really talking, not just to the crowd, but he's speaking to, to the religious leaders, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, and he's talking to them specifically about money, about wealth, about trusting in other things that will ultimately disappoint you and let you down and fail you versus trusting in God. And so... He, he, uh, let me read a few verses just to make sure you know where we are. In Luke 16, I'm just going to read a few verses. I'll start in verse 10. Jesus says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling world, worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Notice that Jesus contrasts earthly wealth with what he feels like is true wealth. He makes a distinction there. And And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or wealth. The Pharisees who loved money. It's very important that we see that. Jesus is looking them square in the face. And he says, you people who pride yourself on loving God. You're full-time God servants. You, 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 you pride yourself on being a lover of God, a knower of God, a follower of God. You pride yourself on being someone that is loved by God. What you really love is your wealth and that which the wealth can provide. No one can serve two masters. He, either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this... And we sneering at Jesus. And he said, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. Whatever is highly valued among men is despised by God. Now you could flip that around and it would be true. Whatever is highly valued by men is despised by God. But it's also true, whatever is highly valued by God is despised by men. And that's his point. Um, let, me, let me read this. Well, let me make a couple of more points real quickly. Um, Jesus is warning us, along with these folks, to be careful about we, what we love and what we trust. Uh, he would. He, I think one of the points that he's making is that it's very hard to live life really aware of what we are trusting in at any given moment. What am I today, not in my life, but today, what am I trusting in to make life work? to protect me, to keep me safe, to make my life happy and fulfilled? Am I trusting in my marriage? Am I trusting in my family? Am I trusting in my job? Am I trusting in my friends? Am I trusting in my own moral, high-road living? That I'm a person of a character and integrity? What, what am I trusting in? I think that's what Jesus, to make life work, to make me feel safe and secure. I think that's what Jesus is asking us today. And then I find it very significant that Jesus transitions from this warning about what we trust in. He transitions into this story, this parable, if you will, that we're about to read uh, about these two men. A very, 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 very rich man and a very, very, very poor man. And I just want to let you know on the front end, this is... most scholars, most scholars would agree with me in this statement. This is the most moving, the most troubling, the most sobering, and the most disturbing story... That Jesus ever tells. <coughs> this is a real difficult story. To read. To listen to. To think about. Um, I would just beg you. As you're sitting here today with, my, with me. Um, many of you. Have been taught. You've read stuff. And been taught. That. This is just a parable. It is a parable. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not denying that. But I just want to appeal to you. That because it's a parable. That doesn't mean. That what Jesus is talking about. Isn't real and true. And factual. Um. Think about any of Jesus' parables. You know the parable Jesus taught, don't you? Remember the one about the Martians that flew down from in a spaceship and landed in Jerusalem? You remember that parable? Or I'm sorry, you remember the parable Jesus told about the Loch Ness monster jumping up out of the lake uh, over in Scotland and going over to London and eating the Queen? You remember that parable Jesus taught? No. No. The parables that Jesus taught were about farmers sowing seed and fishermen finding pearls and women putting oil in their lamps at night. And um, I wrote down a bunch of them. Um, oh, oh, uh, 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 taking a trip, a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, imaginary cities that they had never heard of, right? No, no, no. Jesus' parables were made-up stories. But they were always, always, always about real-life things. Jesus didn't make up imaginary uh, like that woman in England that makes, writes all those stories that you're so envious of how popular they are. Harry Potter, you know, she, Jesus isn't telling Harry, Harry I've never read any of them, but Harry Potter stories. That's not what Jesus is, or the X-Men. Jesus isn't telling X-Men stories. He's, he's telling stories about things that everybody in his audience could, had either done or had watched being done. That's very important that we get that, that we see that. They're based on the product, dads and their two sons taking a trip on a dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho, Um, weddings and brides and grooms, etc. These are real life things. And so when Jesus tells a parable about what goes on after death, why would we all of a sudden, out of the what did I tell you? Was there 34? I forgot how many parables Jesus told in, in total. But every one of them's about real life stuff. And then all of a sudden we get to this parable. Oh, that's imaginary. That's imaginary. Why, why, where, why would you say that? Why would you think that? Where would you get that from? This is real. This is true. There, I'm not saying. I beg you to and say it's not a parable. Because it is. But just... I beg you to interpret it the way, or at least approach it, the way we do every other parable that Jesus taught. This parable is very unique in that it's the only passage in the entire Bible, only one, where we get a glimpse of the thoughts The feelings and the words of someone that dies and goes into eternity without God. Now the Bible talks about that place. Sheol, hell, uh, Gehenna, Hades. The Bible talks about that place and describes that place. But this is the only passage in the Bible where we actually get a glimpse of A person being there. And I would just finally, or I read it, I would beg you with all of my heart. uh, For Some of y'all, you know, you wouldn't consider me your pastor and I, I understand that. But some of you would. Some of you would consider me your pastor. And I would consider myself your pastor. As your pastor, I beg you. I beg you. As we read this story to consider who's talking. This isn't Moses. This isn't J- uh, Joshua. This isn't Samuel. This isn't David. This isn't so- uh, Solomon. This isn't Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. This isn't Hosea or, or, or Micah or Malachi. I'm not in, I'm not in any way... Uh, uh, implying that, though, that that's not the literal word of God. Every one of those men that wrote those things, that is the word of God. I'm not, that's not my point. But this isn't, this isn't the words of any of those Old Testament writers. This isn't the word of Matthew. This isn't the word of Paul or Timothy or Titus. Uh, this, these are the words of Jesus. This is Jesus' words. This is Jesus' story. Jesus is talking. Please, I you in talking to me. So, uh, just, just please, I beg you, I beg you to consider who is telling this story and to ask yourself, am I going to let my beliefs and feelings and opinions interpret and define the words of Jesus? Or am I going to let the words of Jesus interpret and define my thoughts and feelings and beliefs? You have to make that decision. But somebody's driving that train. Okay, what you believe and what I believe, somebody's driving that train. And either the train is what is true, and I'm driving that train. Or the train is what I believe, and Jesus is driving that train. Now, you, you, you and I all get to make that decision. But I beg you, just because, well, I don't like this story. I don't agree with this story. I don't believe this story. This story doesn't match my image of God or my feelings about God. Okay? I, 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 can, I wrestle too. I struggle too. I read stories in the Bible like this and it bothers me. But the most important people in my life challenged me 40 years ago, 42 years ago. Either Larry, you're going to let the Bible drive your beliefs or you're going to let your beliefs and thoughts and opinions and feelings drive what you believe about the Bible. Somebody gets to be at the steering wheel. And so you get to decide that. But I would beg you to consider who's talking here. Okay, let me read this real quickly. Luke chapter 16. I'm going to start in verse 19. Jesus said, okay, Jesus said, very important to me. There was a rich man clothed. And the the literal word that Luke uses there is covered. He's covered in purple, purple robes and fine linen. That purple would have come from a dye. A very expensive dye that uh, uh, people would dive down in the Mediterranean Sea uh, off the coast of Tyre. And they would bring up these mollusks and they would crush up the mollusk and make this purple dye. And it was very expensive and only the uber, the lifestyles of the rich and famous kind of people, uh, only they could afford this. So for him to dress himself in this purple means he was very, very wealthy. The linen, the fine linen came from Egypt. Still to this very day, Egyptian linen is very, very expensive. Uh, And he was clothed in this purple and fine linen and lived daily in splendor and luxury. And outside his gate, he's got a gate. Nobody in Israel had a gate. Nobody had a gate because everybody in Israel was poor. But this man had a gate. That means he was very, very wealthy. Very wealthy. That he would literally have a, a home with a gate. And uh, it says, outside his gate lay a poor man. Really the wording there is, outside his gate a poor man was brought or carried. Every, this uh, Daily, somebody would bring this poor man and dump him. Outside the gate of this rich man. And his name was Lazarus. And he was covered in sores. Like the rich man's covered in purple robes and linen. This poor man was covered in sores. And he longed for the scraps from the, from the room's table. Remember a dude last week who longed for the scraps? Who was that? What was that dude? Oh yeah, the prodigal son. Same exact deal. That longing for scraps. The the image Jesus is portraying here or conveying here is this person is desolate. He's empty. He has nothing. He literally what the, the scraps that fall from the table. He wishes that some of the guests of this rich man would bring them out to him. And dogs would lick his, sto- his sores. Dogs were unclean animals uh, in Jesus' day. They were considered like rats and pigs. How did we lose? That? Anyway, no, I'm sorry. That's a whole other thing. I wish Terry Townsend was here. But anyway, that's... Uh, no, dog, they, they, so it, this is not saying that sweet dogs came and, and, was, and gave comfort. To Lazarus. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that here is a Jewish man who is so weak with sickness and starvation that he can't shoo these unclean animals away from licking him. Finally, Lazarus died and was carried the way he was carried every day by somebody and dumped at the gate of this rich man. Now, he's being carried away by angels. Finally, Lazarus died and was carried by angels to be with Abraham. And the rich man died too. And he was buried. There's a subtle message there that the rich man had a big funeral. Lazarus was so alone and so poor that he didn't even have a funeral. Uh, in tor- I'm sorry, uh, the rich man died and was buried and his soul went to Hades. In torment, he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. Um, Jesus has taught earlier about how the, the first shall be last and the last will be first. And be careful when you walk into a party. Sit at the, back, at the end of the table. Don't sit at the front of the table. Uh, and if you sit at the end of the table, if you accept that lowly place, there'll be a day when God will put you at the head of the table. That's what Jesus is referring to there. In torment, he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. And the rich man begged. Notice now who's begging. Lazarus his whole life sat at that gate begging people that came in and out of that rich man's gate for food and help. The rich man never begged a day in his life. Why would he beg? He had everything in the world. He lived daily in luxury. But now, look who's begging. The rich man begged, Father Abraham, have mercy. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in these flames. It's very significant that you notice this. The rich man, you might notice what the rich man doesn't say. The rich man doesn't say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I've wasted my life on selfishness and pride. I'm sorry, I I regret how I live. No. He's in torment, he's in anguish, he's miserable. There's no remorse. There's no regret. There's no repentance. There's no, I wished I had lived different. In fact, the minute he realizes that he's suffering, what does he do? Abraham, send this servant. He's always been a servant in my eyes, he's always been a lowly person. Send him to make me feel better. Nothing's changed. He still sees everybody from a position of, even in torment and anguish, he still sees himself in a position of superiority and he still sees people. I can boss them around telling him to come make me feel better. That's what he spent his life doing. Telling people to come make me feel better and make me happy. Send, him to tip, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in these flames. Abraham said, Son, remember during your life that you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he's being comforted and you are in torment. And there's a great chasm separating us and no one can cross over from here to you Or from you to us. And the rich man again begged. Father Abraham. Send Lazarus to warn my five brothers. So they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said. Moses and the prophets have warned them. They can read their words. But the rich man replied. No father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead. They'll repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. I hope you see Jesus' weaving in this story of contrast and reversals. It's the story of two men where Jesus is contrasting their lives their situations and their destinies. The rich man, he lives inside the gate. He lives in independence, ease. He has no needs. He has, he's, the, he's the most popular person in town surrounded by a whole mansion full of friends. And his life is one of continual opulence and splendor. Lazarus, very significant, his name. Oh, by the way, this is the only parable where Jesus gives somebody a name. And the name that Jesus gives him is the name Lazarus. God is my help. Speaks volumes about what Lazarus banked on, held on to, clung to, in his suffering and, and uh, uh, desolation. God is my help. He lived outside the gate. He was poor and needy and hungry. He was covered in sores. He, was, he had a life of shame. He was alone. He had no one. No one. No one that would even let him stay home and he would care for him. They they literally would, to get him out, go and dump him out at the gate. Maybe some people will give him some money or give him some food. But get him away. He's absolutely alone. The rich man had everything in the world but eternal life. And the poor man had absolutely nothing but eternal life. That's the point. Who was the rich man? Who was the rich man? The man that had everything but eternal life or the man that had nothing but eternal life? All right. I got 15 minutes. I want to make seven seven suggestions that I wish you would go home and ponder. And if you want me to send you these to ponder some more, you text me or email me and I'll send them to you, okay? Number one, based upon this story, I think there's seven things that Jesus wants us to think about. Number one, I think he wants us to think about wealth. Luke 16 is not talking about the evils of money. Jesus is not saying that money's evil. Jesus is not saying that it's a bad deal to be rich. Jesus isn't saying that we ought to work hard and save our shekels and invest them and hope for a windfall. That's not what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is saying that we need to view and handle and manage our wealth wisely and carefully. He is saying, don't let your wealth blind you, deceive you, distract you, numb you, or consume you. He is saying, a blind man can see this. He is saying, don't associate your wealth with God's favor. Rich people can be under the disfavor of God. Don't associate your poorness, your poverty with God's disfavor. Oh, I'm poor. That means God doesn't love me. Clearly, this story says there are rich people that God isn't smiling upon. And there are poor people, really poor people, poorer than any person you've ever met, I would bet, who God sees with great delight and favor. And Jesus is saying that we should not spend the lion's share of our lives focused on that which is temporal and won't last, but rather we ought to focus on that which is eternal and will last. The wisest man that ever lived in Proverbs chapter 11 said this, wealth will wealth you on the day of judgment. Wealth, will. uh, Mr. Gates and Larry Ray will stand before God someday and his bunches and bunches of, of money and my not bunches and bunches of money that will have nothing to do with how we relate to God or how God relates to us. Number two: I think that Jesus wants us to read this story. and if we have lives that would be described as painful, sorrowful, needful, lives that would be lives of, that are hurt, hurting lives, I think Jesus wants to encourage us. I think, I think that this is a word you got to understand. of the people that Jesus were talking to were more poor in that day than any poor person you and I have probably ever met. These were people that lived every day. For that day, they had no reserve. And he, he wants in this story... We see the bad. But you have to understand that the majority of the people Jesus was talking to, these were poor people. They identified with Lazarus. Not see, we're every one of us in this room, when I read that story, everyone in this room identified with the rich man. Am I handling my money right? Am I using my money the way I'm supposed to? Am I am I being selfish with my money? That, every one of us, me too. Everybody, I say everybody, almost everybody that Jesus was talking to, they identified with Lazarus. And Jesus wanted to give them a word of encouragement. He wanted them to see that there'll be a day when God changes things and makes things different. I find, guys, I'm sorry. You'll have to go home and ponder this. I've been pondering it all week. I find it remarkable that Jesus in no way apologizes for or defends his father's willingness to let his children suffer. There's no explanation for this. All Jesus says is that there's a guy that is so poor and so sick and so in pain that he can't shoo away dogs that are licking his wounds. He has, he's starving. You would think Jesus would say, well, let me explain to you why. There's a grander purpose for this. All things work together for good. God's in control and he's using this for other pur-. Maybe he is. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying that's wrong. But my point is, Jesus doesn't utter a word of like, you know, I'm sorry guys. I know know my dad's letting you suffer and be in need and be in want. I'm sorry. No, no. There's no apology. There's no explanation. There's no defense that God lets many of his favorites suffer horribly. But what Jesus does say is that for those that God allows or causes, whatever floats your boat, to suffer in great need, there'll be a day. For those of you that have lived in utter misery in your marriage, there'll be a day. For those of you that have literally never had two pennies to put together in your pocket, there'll be a day. For those of you that have been chronically and continually in pain and in sickness, most of your life, you never wake up feeling good. Jesus said, there'll be a day. God has something in store where they'll... Lazarus doesn't say this. But it seems like he looked at Abraham and said, you know, it was worth it. You don't hear him complain. You don't say, you know, I'd like to go to the complaint desk. I'm not sure I like how my deal. I don't like the hand that I was dealt. No, no, you get the idea that Lazarus is now in heaven with Abraham in the presence of God. And it's okay. It makes sense. I I love him and I'm glad to be with him. The lonely will have friends. The sick and hurting will be healed. Outsiders will be included. The poor and the needy will have immeasurable abundance. Those that have never been given any mercy will be given great grace. The shamed will experience honor. The rejected will be accepted. The joyless will rejoice And those that would describe their lives primarily by the word death. There'll be a day when they will describe their lives exclusively by the word life. Number three. Death. I think, how can you read this and not think Jesus wants to think about death and dying? We are all born in the different situations. Right? Every one of us born in the different situations. Good situations, bad situations, okay situations, uh, all kind of situations. We all die in the same situations. Death is universal. And death is that which... It's the great equalizer. It's the great... Um, Uh, uh, It's that which makes things level. It's the leveler. We all enter into death the same way. I also would tell you that death, according to this story, death is the great awakener. We don't go into death with our eyes closed. We go into death and for the first time we can see We can see what is truly real. This idea of soul sleep? No. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, I I long to die and be with Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me. And in this story, the rich man dies and he is in Hades. The poor man dies and he is in the presence of Abraham and heaven. This idea that we're going to die and somehow go into some kind of a uh, 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 you know, one of these. What's that dude that says? I'll leave the light on for you. Into one of these mo- uh, these, these places that you that you then sleep. It's absurd. It's a, it's ridiculous. Clearly, unless you have a brain smaller than an English pea, you can't read this story and walk away thinking. no I'm thinking that annihilation's the way it goes. Good people go to be with Jesus in heaven and bad people are just annihilated. They just go into the... They just disappear like, a, like, a, like an Easter lily in June. It just sort of goes away. It just sort of disappears. No. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, some of you will go into eternal punishment. And others of you will go into eternal life. How in the world can I emphasize that some of you will go into eternal life without at least trying to accept that others will go into eternal punishment? Death, let me say it this way life after death is real, it's conscious. What do you do with this story? Death or life after death, it's real. Both of these men are real. Both of these men are conscious. Both of these men are aware. Both of these men can communicate. Both of these men can see. Both of these men can think. Both of these men are aware of their surroundings. You're conscious. It's real. You're aware. According to this story, life after death, will ultimately be the result. You, there's two options. There's not a third option. I'd like to become a part. I want to be absorbed into a tree. That's my choice. Well, That's not what this story teaches. I want to become a part of a, a dewdrop in the ocean of forgetfulness and blend into the... That's fine and Jim Dandy. But you're rejecting what the words of Jesus teach my wife what the words of Jesus teach there's no second my wife and I have a loving continual ongoing uh, disagreement and uh, I love her she's not so pretty she's just so pretty and I, and she's brilliant and she's brilliant except she's as, she's as wrong as she can be <laughs> I hope she's right. And if I tore this story out of the Bible, I think she would be right. And that is that when you die, you get a second chance. I hope you're right. But if you take these words to be the words of Jesus and the words of the one who conquered death. This this rich man didn't get a second chance. There's no mulligans. There's no do-overs. They went into eternity and they were left with the fate that they were given. The contrast between the destinies of these two men It's sharp, it's somber, it's absolute, and it's permanent. That poor man spent his life looking to God as his help. He had a relationship with God in life. And that, he kept that relationship with God in death. The rich man did not have a relationship with God in life. He didn't need it. Why would he need God? This is a, this is a, a wealthy man. Man, he was an A player. He was the member of everything. He had everything. He had accomplished everything he needed nobody and needed nothing, including God. He had no relationship with God in life, and that led to no relationship with God in death. Quickly, number four faith. Notice what what Abraham said to the rich man. If you won't believe the word of God, you will not believe if God does miracles for you. Miracles never create faith. They create curiosity and interest. But hey, let's all go, we're gonna have us a big miracle doing dead, raising, sick, healing poor, turning into rich uh, uh, crusade. And we're going to rent us a big building and we're going to get everybody down in and we're going to have people hooping and hollering and miracles happening left and right. And ooh, what's that going to do to y'all's faith? I can tell you what it's going to do to your faith. Nothing. Oh you, you it'll affect your excitement, it'll exi- affect your joy, it'll af- or your happiness, a miracle working. I'm telling you, you will leave a miracle working rally the same way you came. Miracles do not produce faith. The word of God produces faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Ask the Egyptians who witnessed the ten plagues. Ask Judas, who watched every miracle Jesus ever did. Ask the Israelites who woke up every morning and breakfast was outside waiting on them. And every afternoon, quail literally were knocking on the door. I'm here to be eaten. I'm thirsty, water shooting out of rocks. There were f- f- clouds and fire pillars. There were miracles everywhere. Ooh, those Israelites, they had strong faith. Don't you and I want to have faith like the Israelites? They never know. Miracles don't produce faith. Number five. You remember the verses I read a little while ago about the rich man and all the evil things he did? He drank and cussed and gambled and hit his wife and spit on the sidewalk and busted in front of nuns in lines to get stuff. He was a wicked man. Ooh, he did wicked things. Is that what Jesus said about that? I don't know. He might have been the nicest dude in town. There's, no, there's nothing, there's no reference to him being Bad. Remember all the good things Lazarus did? Hept old women across the street. Read books down at at St. Jude. Uh, No, we don't have a record of Lazarus doing one good thing. We don't have a record of the rich man doing one bad thing. You know why? Good deeds don't get you into heaven. And bad deeds don't keep you out of heaven. There's only one thing that gets you into heaven. Are you an intimate relationship with Christ? Just, Gail, dead gummit. If I could have given you a script today. Golly, Bill. I swear I didn't know what she was going to say. And she didn't know what I was going to say. What gets us into heaven? Do I have an intimate relationship with God? The question isn't, Larry, how many good do? You do? The question is, Larry what do you love and what are you trusting in? How many bad deeds are going to keep me out of heaven? Well, I don't know. But I can tell you I've gone over the quota. So what keep, what gets me into heaven and what keeps me out of heaven? It is determined by what I love and what I trust in. And Jesus is warning us Precious, precious children. Be careful what you cling to. Be careful what you trust in. Be careful what you depend on. Be careful what you look to. Your eternal destiny is determined by it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they loved their money. And they trusted in their money. And they scoffed at Jesus. And that's what determined their destiny. Number six. How do you read this story and not realize? It is a big deal to God that I show love to people that God loves. It's a big deal to me that you show love to people I love. You know who I love in this room? Most. The people in this room that have been nice to my wife and been nice to my daughter. You want me to love you? You love my wife and you love my daughter. Me and you, gonna go, we're going to go far. God feels exactly the same way. God loves people who love the people he loves and guess who God loves poor people he loves hurting people he loves people that are desolate that have been that are on the outside that have never been welcomed, have never been accepted, never experienced the abundance of... I'm not saying that being accepted and welcomed and having abundance is wrong, but I'm telling you, you can't read the Bible and walk away going, I wonder how Jesus feels about poor people. I can tell you how He feels about them. Be nice to people that are in need. Sacrifice for them. Love on them. Help them. Make their situation better. And God thinks that's a big deal. And one of the points of Jesus' story is, that rich man, you know, you you might say, well, maybe the rich man was so busy enjoying life, he didn't even know that Lazarus was out there. Isn't it funny that he knew him by first name? He didn't say, Father Abraham, send that poor man. No, no, no. Lazarus. Send Lazarus. He knew exactly who he was. Exactly who he was. And I believe Jesus wants you. I want you to to relate well. I want you to be responsible with the blessings I've given you and use a bunch of it, not all of it, but a bunch of it to make people's lives better that didn't get as good a deal as you got. How How can we read that and miss that? And then lastly, Who is it in your life? Who is it in my life that sits outside the gate begging for our crumbs? Who is it that's begging for your crumbs? Who is it that's begging for my crumbs? I'll be honest with you. There was a day, I pray it was many, many, many years ago, When my wife was begging for my crumbs, I was so busy. Man, I was doing, man, I was busy, important, moving and shaking, conquering, defeating, overcoming, winning, rescuing, ministering. And my wife was begging for crumbs. Doesn't have to be a poor man. It can be your wife. Wishing that you would just give them a little time. A little love. A little grace. Could be your husband. Could be your children. Could be your parents. Could be some co-worker. But somebody that would give anything. If you just would share. A, not. The point's not rich man sell. Notice Jesus didn't tell this rich man go sell all you got and give it to the poor. He didn't tell no, no, no. Just do something. You've been given so much. Do something. Probably more than you're doing. Probably more than you're doing. It's a mighty story coming out of the lips of the one who became poor so that you and I could become rich. Who became sick so that we could be healed. Who willingly left heaven so that we could get into heaven. Who left the golden child of the universe to become the reject of mankind. He put his money where his mouth is. You know, these politicians say, oh, we ought to be green while they're stepping into their limousines. We ought to help the poor while they're making millions. We need education while their kids go to private schools it is a joke Jesus didn't joke Jesus put his money where his mouth was whatever he asked me and you to do he's done it a billion fold so he can say it he can ask it he can teach it um Kim and Jerry, come help me. You've been at the beach. You need some exercise. And y'all look so pretty, all tan. (laughs) We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Psalm 17 says, David says, Because I am righteous... I will see you, O oh God, when I awake. I will see you face to face, and I will be satisfied. Wonder where a lion, cheating, adulterating, murdering, crying, scaredy cat like David, got some righteousness. Wonder where he found his righteousness. I think he got it from the same person that wants to make you and I righteous. He asked for it and God gave it to him freely. God, I don't have any righteousness. Would you share with me? I'd love to, David. I'd love to, Larry. I'd love to, Rick. I'd love to, John. I'll give you my righteousness. Because I am righteous, I will see the Lord face to face and I will be satisfied. Isn't that a good word? We're going to eat bread, which represents the body of Jesus, and we're going to drink wine or juice. The juice is yellow. And that represents the blood of our Savior. We do that just to declare, I believe what Jesus did on the cross Is going to get me into heaven. I believe what Jesus did on the cross. Will make me righteous. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. If that's what you're banking on. If that's your hope. You come. You eat. You drink. And you give thanks. Okay. If you'd like prayer. There will be people on my right and my left. Who would love to pray for you.